What's up? Drew, how are you? I'm good. How about you, Dan? I'm good. It felt weird that you are my best friend and you haven't been on the show yet, so I had to call you. Sweet. I am uh, honored that you're calling me, even though you call me all the time. 30 weeks in, finally calling you. (sighs) Yeah. What are you drinking? A beer. It's a snow day. (laughs) Speaking of snow days, it's the Christmas season, and around this time, I always think of one of my favorite memories of you. We went to an ugly sweater Christmas party, and Uh as usual, I dressed up our entire house of six boys, and... (laughs) You wore my grandfather's old tie, and I love this tie because when I was a little kid, he would come over and you would squeeze the bottom of the tie, and it would sing like a very pixelated, digitized rendition of Jingle Bells. A cheesy Christmas tie. A, a cheesy Christmas tie. It had not done that in many years, and so when I gave it to you, we went to the party, and what did you do with the tie? So everybody saw this tie that is clearly a like classic 1990s cheesy singing tie. Mm-hmm. And then people would be like, oh, is that one of those that like lights up or uh, sings? So then I would say, yes. And then I would sing and everyone would just look at me and be like, uh, what's happening? Like they didn't get the joke. No one understood it. Yeah, it was a crowded party. And all you could hear is you singing Jingle Bells and then silence and then me cackling in a corner. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is I'm pretty sure you were next to me every single time because you were the only person that would actually understand the joke. It was like... Looking back on it, it was one of the best jokes, but also such bad planning on our part to do that in a party with loud music and a ton of people around. I think I was also going up to strangers and being like, ask my roommate about his tie. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked by that. That sounds about right. My parents are on the show today. Oh. Remember there was at such a time that no one in the house had met your parents that we joked that they were actually brooms? Yeah, I... I came back to the house one day and everybody was like, huh, how was it visiting your broom parents? And I was very confused by that because my parents are not brooms, which you now know. <laughs> Why are we so stupid? <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of funny though. This is also just the tip of the iceberg of the stupidity we've endured for almost 10 years. Oh, it's just a downward spiral if you go from there. All right. Well, I'm going to go talk to my parents. I'll tell them you said hi. All right. Tell Jerry and Joan I say hi. No, you know their names. A plus. Exactly. (laughs) All right. I'll talk to you later. Hello, and welcome to Out of Love, the show where we try to make sense of love in hopes of better relationships, bettering ourselves, and in my case, becoming a better wedding officiant. My name is Dan Casarella, and when all you got to keep it strong, move along like I know you do. On today's show, my parents. My sister Sarah's wedding is in almost two weeks, and I still feel vastly underprepared. Seems like doing 32 shows of this really, again, was more about me and less about becoming a better wedding officiant. And one of the things I aimed to learn was about marriage. What is marriage like? I think when you're someone in my age who is not married, who is young, it kind of seems like an impossible mountain to climb. It seems like something you can't really know about. And so to really give me a good idea on what makes a good marriage, what makes a loving marriage, what the difficulties of a marriage are, I went to two people whom I've known for almost my entire life, my own parents. I sat down with my mom, Joan, and my dad, Jerry, together, and we discussed what makes a good marriage, what the difference in marriage is generationally, and 
How can you prepare to it? And I think I really learned a lot. I got a really great perspective on marriage, the difficulties, and why it's important to maybe not look too far ahead in the future. Now, a quick note in this interview when we talk about grandparents. When I discuss my grandparents, my father's parents, I refer to them as Nono and Nona. That is the Italian way to say grandpa and grandma. When you hear me say grandma and grandpa in relation to my mother, that is my grandparents, her parents, Rita and George. So just when you hear those terms, grandma and grandpa in English, that is my mom's. Anyway, let's talk to my parents. I wanted to talk to both of you today, one, because it's an easy booking, but two, from everything I've gathered through the process of this show, marriage is really hard and can often fail. And growing up, and even as an adult today, I've never really been exposed to a very difficult, hard marriage. And I think in part that's because of your marriage and kind of going through this process, I I think it's probably much harder to be in a good marriage than a bad marriage. And so I'm curious, starting out, what were both of your views on marriage when you were growing up, when you were children? So grandma and grandpa, my parents had almost the same long-term relationship. They were married for over 50 years. And I think my view of marriage was a partnership that you help somebody else out and they help you out and you love that person. And things are not always easy and things are not always going to go smoothly, but it's working together towards a common goal is what I thought marriage was about. So for me growing up in Italy, it was a little bit different. And what I saw from, you know, people that were married was something where even though in Italy, it's more gender divided work, Mm -hmm. everybody kind of helped each other out. They pitched in, they did what they needed to do. And, you know, it was a partnership and and a collaboration. I guess when I was growing up, I always envisioned marriage to be along those lines. And I think we we did that. I think that if you look at our marriage, we've been married 35 years. It's really a collaborative effort. I think that there's parts that, you know, my weakness is your strengths. Yeah. And I think both our parents had the same kind of like work ethic and partnership. They obviously like my mother did more of the cooking. My father did the gardening, but things need to get done, take care of the kids and nobody was really afraid to step in to do the other work when they needed to, to, to do it. Dad, I'm curious because you grew up in Italy and when you were 12, you came to America. Did you see a difference in romanticism between American culture and Italian culture? Well, it's strange, right? Because on one level, relationships there were kind of more formal, especially like the older couple. It was very traditional women and men, but yet... You had things like serenades, right? So when somebody first proposed to a lady, the guy would go and get his friends. They would get together like a mariachi type of band. Mm-hmm. And then they would go and serenade the bride-to-be and do those kind of things. So it was romantic from, from that aspect. And then at the same time, it was it was kind of formal. And that's how your father proposed to your mother, right? With a big band? Yeah, I think it was kind of expected there. You just got your friends together and, you know, Nana was at a different town. So, you know, they they got together with his friends. They went there and they got did a serenade. But, 
He also had to formally propose to my grandfather. He had to ask, you know, there was like dowry and all those kind of formal things that, that were involved there. Did grandpa have to do that with grandma? You know, Dan, it's a really good question. I can't tell you how they proposed. And the story of my mom and my dad getting married is interesting because my grandmom never liked my mom. And so they got engaged and then grandma broke it off and then they got back together again and then they were going to get married. And then my grandmother said she was going to commit suicide if they wound up getting married. And then she came to the wedding all smiles. And so My mother and my grandmother always had a tumultuous relationship, although they were both great moms and great grandmoms. For whatever reason, those coals were striped and there was always a lot of fire in there. I'm not really sure like the exact moment that grandpa proposed to grandma, although I do know that they met at a dance in New York City and they court it. And there's a beautiful picture of grandma and grandpa in Central Park that they tell the story that a man was walking by and they asked him to take a picture of them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And you see the just the hope in their eyes and that that young love and that relationship. I've always cherished that picture. And by the time that grandma and grandpa were getting married, grandma's dad had already passed. He passed when she was a child and her mom had passed just two days after grandma introduced grandpa to her. She wound up passing. So there was not that that sense of like a dowry or getting to know the family or anything like that. Grandma was the youngest of seven children and her oldest sibling was 17 years older than her. So her mom was quite a bit older. And like I said, she passed before grandma had even gotten married. Nana told me the story, you know, I asked her, you know, how did you meet, how did you meet Nana? She says, you know, you know, there was a feast one day. And when the feast happens, people from the different towns go, go to see that. So she said, you know, I was working. I told my, my father, you know, I'm going to go out with my girlfriends. And then she went out and, you know, to the feast and met, met Nana. That's how they met. You were talking about a dowry and this sense of asking for approval, and, and that seems very adequated, but Sarah's fiance, George, did that for you guys too. What was your thoughts when he, quote unquote, asked permission for Sarah's hand in marriage? Did you feel like that was appropriate? Did you want that to happen? Or did you kind of think that's an outdated tradition? So the first thing I told George when he asked me is, you have to learn Italian and ask, ask that same question in Italian. Well, he didn't. <laughs> so after we got through that, you know, I told him he didn't really need to ask my permission. I think that's kind of old fashioned, but I appreciated very much the fact that, that he thought. So, you know, that made me feel that he appreciates family. And so I was very appreciative that he thought about asking, even though I didn't really think he needed to ask or ask for at least my permission, you know, whatever Sarah wants to do. She has good judgment. So that was good enough for me. And George actually wound up texting me one morning and saying, I need to talk to you. And I got a little bit nervous. And then when we arranged a good time to talk, he had said that he spoke with you, Dan, and that he'd also spoke with dad. And I was the last family member. And he just wanted to let me know he was going to propose. And I was very emotional. I thought it was a really sweet thing to talk to the mom about it. We're, of course, 
elated with our future son-in-law and his family and very excited to have a new member of our family. And I think Sarah made a very good choice as well as George made a really good choice. So I thought it was just a very sweet thing to do to speak with all the family members ahead of time. And like dad said, it's not necessary, but it was certainly appreciated. It's good to have that on record too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we really like him. It's funny. I, I, was again endeared by it, but found it as Sarah's younger brother absolutely unnecessary for my permission. And I think it now makes me wield the power in my relationship with George as the dominant one. I can now take advantage of him. <laughs> when you guys were growing up, did you have an idealized version of your wedding? And you know, everyone always says, oh, the wedding you dreamed of as a little girl and as a little Italian boy, did you guys kind of have wedding fantasies, what you kind of wanted it to be like? So when I was growing up, I was not a little Italian boy, but a little girl. I used to play Barbies with Amory Cavino across the street from me. And we used to always pretend what our wedding would be. And of course, our Barbies had wedding dresses and we were going to have eight or 10 bridesmaids and that was going to be a big wedding. And of course, we never envisioned our husbands. We just envisioned the way our hair was going to be and the way that our dresses were going to be. And all of those fantasies as we got older and all of those wishes for what we wanted to be as brides fade it. When the day actually comes or the time comes to start planning your wedding, at least for me, that didn't become as important as seeing family, as planning a wedding. I I was more concerned about becoming a wife than becoming a bride. So not a bridezilla, but really just looking at becoming a wife and, and being introduced to a different family and a different culture and having dad be in our family as well. The first wedding I remember when I was growing up was my cousin Tonino. And in Italy, when you get married, you go to the church. And then after you go to the church, basically everybody in the town comes and there's a procession. So you basically walk to your new home with your bride with, you know, the rest of the town following along. So I always thought that was great tradition. And then you have a big party basically where again, you invite most of the town. And I remember going in and out of the party and playing. So I thought getting married is about family. It's about really celebrating, getting together. But, you know, for me, the the actual ceremony and wedding itself was secondary to just being excited about being married with mom and spending the rest of our lives together. So, Dan, I'm turning the table on you. What is your ideal wedding? Or have you thought about what you want your wedding to be like? And what is that? I, I think there's two visions, right? Like one, you want a, a, a big party and, and everybody who listens to this podcast knows I love attention. So obviously you want your friends around and, and I think you, you want people to say nice things and you want to see all the people you love cheer you on. But in reality, like I think that is kind of hollow and can come and go. And that is, again, just a big party. I, I would, like you two were saying, would just want to make sure I was marrying someone whom I loved and saw a long future with. And it doesn't matter if it was like one of these mini monies that's very popular this year because of the restrictions of COVID has brought upon it. Everybody I've talked to who's had a really small ceremony has said, oh my God, I loved it. It was just about us. It was just about our union. I didn't have to worry about the party and appeasing people and what I look like. And I think that's really special. And I think once we come out of this and once large gatherings are permitted again, we should remember that 
a wedding should not be about anything but love. It shouldn't be about a ceremony. It shouldn't be about a celebration. It has to start at the bond of those two people, and then every other part of it has to grow from there. That's well said. We tend to lose perspective and put so much focus on the ceremony and all the other ancillary things, and sometimes you lose track of that. So, yeah, I think it's great now that you have with Sarah, nice small ceremony, just get together with the family. I think it'll be very special. And you two, your wedding, because you love to say this, costs $3,000. Am I correct in total? About that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we paid, you know, ourselves. And we didn't go overboard. I mean, we couldn't, but, you know, we had the right amount of family and friends there. All the people that we cared about were there. So, you know, parents were there. So, you know, took pictures, all that all that stuff. And it was very, very pleasant. Do you feel like you're married to the same person you got engaged to? No. No. (laughs) No. In good ways or bad ways? Good ways. So successful marriage is about learning and growing from each other. So I know from my perspective, I've learned a lot from mom and through good and bad, you, you become a better person through all these years. So I, I've definitely changed. I used to be much more introverted. Believe it or not, I speak more now than before. It's hard to say. But, you know, you, you learn when, when you're married, you appreciate all the good qualities that your partner has and you try and incorporate those. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. Over time, you grow and you develop as a person, but you still support the person that you married and you still support that, you know, 23 year old, we were young when we got married for better or worse. I was 23. Dad was 25. And I don't know about you, Jared, but I never thought that I never thought about like, I'm going to be with you the rest of my life. And I know that that's what the vows say, but I just took one day and like, you were really fun to be around and you were really silly. And it was just somebody that I love him. And I love like the time that I spent with him and I want to spend But I never thought about 50 years or 20 years. I just thought about, you know, yes, I want to start a life with you. But looking at day by day and then the years took care of themselves. We're kind of just happy and in love. Sometimes you think too much long term. It's not productive. You can't overthink it. I mean, it's probably not good advice for the podcast, but you can't overthink the relationships. Like we lived in the moment and, you know, not to say we didn't plan. And I think we are really good planners, but I think we really just like lived in the moment and good God, it's been 35 years. And we met when we were, I was 21 and you were, we were right out of college. And then we got married less than two years after we knew each other. So... At the same time, though, you kind of have a good sense for the other person, even though the person's going to change. You have a good sense for the core values of that person. And as long as you're comfortable with that, then you kind of figure the rest will take care of itself. Do you feel like there's an overemphasis when you look at me and people my age of a younger generation? Do you think there's an overemphasis on romanticism and perfectionism in general? Definitely perfectionism. I think there's a perception of marriage and relationship that you see in movies and media that you want to have all that. So I think sometimes people strive to control that too much without really looking at the emotions and the the more romantic aspects. Yeah, I, I agree. I think social media plays a large part because you look at the 
the ideal relationship. And you could look at, and Dan, you know that I'm not in for pop culture, so I'm not going to be able to, other than Kardashians, I don't know too many of these names, but you look at their relationships and always smiling and the makeup and the, the objects and things like that. And you always think like, wow, I want to be just like that. And that's why you follow them on social media and you look at all that. And I think that there was less of that ideal relationships. You know, we had our parents to model. We also had relatives that we modeled our relationships after, but you didn't have that perfectionism. You didn't have the idea that your spouse or your mate was what they should be like. I think also generations after us were more scarred, if you will, from all the divorces that they saw from their parents, their friends' parents. So it's also natural for the younger generations to be more cautious and to kind of make sure they don't go through what they saw their parents or their friends' parents go through. That is pretty traumatic. Then I think you tend to overcalculate, right? Then you try and force something that might not be perfect and that you might need to work through the issues with, but instead of doing that, you're just trying to put a, a happy face on it. Yeah, like everything else is a balance, right? You want to take enough time to really get to know the other person but not try to control every single aspect or try to figure everything out. Because like we were talking about before, each partner is going to change, right? So you have to make sure that the other person is willing to change and flexible and supportive. And as long as you have those fundamentals, then I think, you know, the rest will be okay. Is there a piece of advice you wish you were told on your wedding days or something that you wish you had a little bit more clarity on? Remember with the priest that we had, he said, never go to bed angry. I don't don't remember that. (laughs) I remember that. We had to go to pre-cana, right? Yeah, we had to go to pre-cana. He gave some pretty good advice. So one of the best pieces of advice, and this is going to attribute to our ages, and one of the best pieces of advice that I think I got was he said, try not to rely on both of your salaries. And when I walked out of there, I felt that that was such a sexist remark, like, no, I want to contribute to the family. But money does become tight as you start having a family and you have more expenses and a house and not relying day to day on that huge combined income. And so we never did. We really Dependent on dad's income and my income was more for ancillary things. So it made it better when we got older, but money becomes so critical when you start to have a family. And that's where a lot of fights start to stem from. And him saying like, don't rely on both salaries, try to save your money. And I think that that really helped us. You know, we, we got to spend more family time. I got to help you guys stay at home. I only work part-time because we, we really did scale it back right from the very beginning. And when I look at marriage advice, that had probably been the best advice I had gotten is not to rely on those two incomes going forward. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. I remember the part of not going to bed angry at each other. <laughs> <laughs> Take different things. But it, it is a point, and not even in a marriage, but I think if you're the type of person who's keeping a running list of purchases or money spent, you know, oh, I bought him a cup of coffee or like he bought dinner and never paid back, then you're not going to have a good relationship because a relationship is not, I buy this, you buy this, I did this for you, so you have to do it. It's not totally reciprocal and you can't always rely on it to be. You know, Dan, that's actually a really good point. And it's not just financial. That relationship should not be 
calculating, I did this for you, or I paid for this, that relationships are fluid. There's going to be times where it's going to be 80-20, and there's going to be times when it's 50-50. And that recognizing that it's not always going to be a 50-50, let's have the, the sheet out saying like what you did and what I did. And so I think that, that that really is a good point to make. That's the basis of a strong relationship as well, is not calculating if it be financial or it be time spent or household chores or whatever, saying that you did this and I did that. I have a strong opinion on that. I think at some point after you've been married a while or whenever it's right for the couple, I think you have everything joined and you look at everything as a joint asset or whatever, and you don't really worry about this and that and make everything joint. That's my my story and I'm sticking to it. Well, and the fact that dad's money is my money is really <laughs> Is there, because we were talking about difficulties, is there a time when you felt like you two were the most distant in your marriage? Yeah, when the kids are young is really hard because your time is spent with the kids and your time is spent running around and there's so little time that you can spend as a couple. So that's probably the distant. And I think for me, I was resentful because I was home. I was not in a career mode. I worked, but my work was just to fulfill ourselves financially and not like a self-satisfying role. And I think that for me, we became more and more distant. Luckily, you know, things change and time goes on and the kids become less dependent and more independent. And so you have that time back as a couple. But I think for me, that was the most stressful times is when the kids are younger. There's periods where the the work-life balance gets messed up, especially when you're first starting to work and you have to travel and you have to projects and things like that. And what happens sometimes is you lose awareness of the big picture. You're trying to focus so much on making sure that your career is going well in terms of making sure you have the financial resources that you lose awareness of the big picture. And, you know, that, that causes some of that distances. Because this is another subject I wanted to get into. There is unequal gender roles at play. You know, mom, all women have to carry the child for nine months. And then societal roles is that the mother is the one who has to take care of them when they're newborns. And regardless of how good or bad of a father the other partner is, there's there's resentment there. I'm curious because I know dad as a father has always been supportive. Was he supportive to you as a new husband when you first had children? Yeah, dad had always been a really great father from just the onset. But just to just to share how dad was supportive when I was in labor with you, Dan, you were a really difficult labor in the sense you were a short labor, but it really hurt. You were nine and a half pounds. And when we were at the hospital, I had said to dad, like, I was in a lot of pain. And I said to dad, like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home and I don't want to have the baby anymore. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll go get the car, knowing full well that that was not going to transpire. But that's how supportive dad was from the very beginning. You know, he was just very supportive and would do everything. No, dad always, and he was the one that would take you guys when you were cranky. And, and I didn't feel as though... There was that division of gender roles when you guys were little. I think dad did probably more than I did as a parent. You did the diapers and everything. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, think I know why. Because I saw my dad, 
even though he grew up in a very traditional gender divided tasks, he would cook, he would clean, he would do whatever it takes. And I think that kind of instilled in me, we got married and we had kids, whatever has to get done, gets done. So I think I'd, the advice I would give as a father is to think of yourself as both a father and a mother and not get caught up into those roles and whatever needs to be done, you just, you know, you just get done. And you never worry about who does more, who does less, because over time, it's going to equal itself out. Nobody is purposely trying to do more or less. There's sometimes you have to step up and do more. Sometimes you step back, but it has to be equal partnership and just do whatever needs to get done. Dan, did you feel we were in traditional roles? I guess not. To back up, you, for, for a lot of when I was very young, worked from home and worked part-time. And even after you got laid off and you worked at Yellow Pages and you worked at Meals on Wheels, like those were part-time jobs. And so you were always around and home. And so I think you probably did grocery shopping and cooking dinner. But dad, you know, went to Delicious Orchards on Saturdays. Dad was always home by six. I think dad took us to sporting events or would take us out to places. Like I, I personally think it was very equal, even though I think just based on schedule eyes, mom, you may have done more of the traditional wife roles, but I think the responsibility was split in equality. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, and I like to cook and I like to clean. So, I mean, I don't feel as though I was burdened with those traditional roles. I think that if I would have been the one to be more adventuresome, like dad loved to take you guys out on outings, I would like to be home and cook and clean. I liked that. I think there's nothing wrong with you know, traditional or non-traditional roles and you support each other in whatever you do or whatever you choose to do. One of the things that people have to realize is that the other person does a million things in the background that you don't see. So, you know, you have to appreciate that too. And that's important, again, in any relationship or, or in a work relationship too. You might only see the end result of a product, but keep in mind how many hours, how many days it took to get to that point and to always remember the amount of work and time and effort that went into that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people my age have a mentality of they don't want to have children. Either the the cliche, and I think this is a, a BS excuse, but they'll say, I don't want to bring kids into this world, whatever. The world's always a problematic. Or they like their independence as a couple. They don't want to have kids. They don't want to sacrifice vacation time, sacrifice their free time, sacrifice date night to take care of other human beings. What would your response to someone who had that mentality be? Do you advocate that they should have kids or maybe each couple is different and you got to do your own thing? I, I would not advocate one way or another. I would encourage them to think of their decision. I would not try to change their mind one way or another. I know that, oh gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I know that I did not want kids in the sense that I agree with all of those reasons. You don't want to bring a child into the world. You don't want to sacrifice your free time financially. You're at a career move that, you know, you're waiting for the next promotion. I know that we plan to have children, even though it just happened in the sense that you're 25 and now you're going to have children because that's where you are at your relationship. And it was the best experience. And so you don't know an experience, you know that it's going to be a change, but you don't know how beautiful and how wonderful it is until 
to have children until you have children. And then every single day you are filled with so much love. And both you and Sarah, especially when you were little, every single day seemed like Christmas Eve. You would wake up and the child would do something different the next day. There would be a new smile, a new word. It was just so much fun, especially the first couple of years. And that, so all of that, I don't want to bring a child into this world. All of that fades away. And the love that you feel for that child, there's nothing like it. And I think that that's, you know, also when you talk about relationships, that's where your focus is on that child and it's not so much on the other person. And you have to learn how to renegotiate your relationship with your spouse. But I would not try to change anybody's mind about having children. I would hope that they would change their their own mind. I agree. I think it's a totally personal individual decision that the couple has to has to make and hopefully they talk about it as part of their you know engagement and things like that but everybody's different both individually and as a couple and they have to make their own decision because you don't want to force something that's not natural and agreed to but I agree you know having kids is just I mean I always assume we we're going to have kids so it's just a natural progression of the relationship but it's, we have the best kids, so we're we're wonderful. Maybe you do. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, if you're comfortable, I want to take a, a brief aside to talk about miscarriages. You you had a few miscarriages in between Sarah and I, and I see it happening with a lot of people in my life that they're very fearful and afraid to talk about it. They feel really lost when it happens because it is taboo to talk about. Why do you think as a culture, we don't want to have that really difficult conversation that ultimately will make people feel less alone? I think in general, loss or death is always difficult to talk about. Some people are very personal and they can't talk about it. Even the same thing with death. A lot of times we don't talk about death as a society. The miscarriages, for me, I had three in between the two of you. And, you know, it was a very, very sad time that you go through. And, you you know, dad and I both felt the same period of loss. And I think that that's, you know, we're just not comfortable as a society talking about any kind of loss, whether even if it's, you know, a loss of a parent, or even if it's at the loss of a relationship, like a divorce, a lot of those things that right now are just not things that, you know, we feel comfortable talking about in the open and that we wind up talking about with a social worker or we wind up talking about to a therapist, but we don't feel comfortable. And I think that I can applaud some of the people in social media where, you know, now depression or mental illness is becoming more talked about. All of those things are becoming more and more open. And in in the generations that come after us, I really think that that's a wonderful move, that things such as loss or mental illness or things like that are being talked about. You know, those difficult subjects are coming out more. I agree. I think in our generation, it was more kind of just hush-hush kind of things. And I, I don't think that's healthy. It's a big trauma emotionally and mentally, physically. And just like other traumas, you have to acknowledge them. You have to go to a process of grieving and recovery. And you have to allow time and provide support for, you know, for that process to happen. Well said. Thank you for, for speaking on that. This whole show is in preparation for Sarah getting married. 
what is it like to watch your child prepare to get married to go through that process as parents? It's always about Sarah, isn't it, Dan? Um, 33 episodes. <laughs> it's wonderful. You start thinking about your own relationship and becoming more reflective about, oh, what it was like when I was that age and going through that. It's wonderful to see both of your children grow up and to be adults. And it's even more satisfying to know that she's in a relationship where it's a healthy relationship. They both seem to complement one another. They both seem to enjoy each other's company. And it's really fulfilling to see that develop and grow. Yeah, I think just our wedding, it's not, for me, it's not so much the ceremony, but the whole process of Sarah finding somebody that's wonderful and seeing that how happy they both are to be together and they're growing together. That's the most rewarding thing is to to see them both grow as a couple and be so happy together. Is there anything you wish you, you would caution them against as they prepare to get married? I think I'm always leery giving advice because I think both George and Sarah is very, very mature. And especially with your podcast now, they're going to be experts <laughs> on love. So no, I think, you know, I think they're both very smart, very mature. So I, I think they'll do fine just with uh, my advice anyway. Yeah, I'm always hesitant to give advice because I think half the time people don't listen to it. So you're just kind of wasting your breath. It's like teaching a pig to sing. You only frustrate yourself and the pig still doesn't sing. So I'm always hesitant to give advice. I think they've done pretty well without our advice. So no, no advice. Sorry. <laughs> now, if they want to know how to make a good espresso, then uh, I'll, I'll uh, pack, in the, pack in the beans. Does this podcast count as a wedding gift? And if so, does that mean I could return the gift I got from William Sonoma? No, I think you're cheating me out. <laughs> I think this is the best gift you could give anybody. Your time and effort to really, you know, talk to all these wonderful people and get their thoughts on love. It's helped not just Sarah, but everybody, I think. So Dr. Johnson called you out on a previous podcast Regarding yeah. whether or not you're doing your podcast as self-fulfilling and promoting yourself, or why are you doing it? So I'm going to call you out on this one, too, and ask you the same question. Are you really well, doing this for Sarah, or are you doing this for self-promotion and self-fulfillment on your end? Dr. Johnson called me out because he thought that I am afraid to be a personality on radio and TV. And... I understand that hesitation. I really don't. I have no interest in being a professional on-air talent. I could not stress that enough. Now, to your question, which is a little different of, of am I doing this for self-fulfillment? Absolutely. The quote-unquote pitch of the show is that I don't know a lot about love and relationships. And so when Sarah asked me to officiate her wedding, I felt kind of lost. And so I did this podcast. Now, that's obviously gimmicky. And I'm a good public speaker. I'm a good writer. I, I know I can give a good wedding ceremony, but it stemmed from a fear that I was intimidated to do it regardless because I feel like I can't live up to love. I feel like it has always been something in my life that's been a little elusive to me. And I feel like I've never quite gotten it right or felt comfortable with it. And so... You know, this is episode 32, 33, I'm unsure. Not all these episodes about Sarah. Not all these episodes about really romantic love, even. But it's a, it's a means to explore 
different curiosities in my life through the lens of love. And so absolutely, it's self-indulgent. If, if I really was so fearful of giving a good wedding ceremony, I would just hire someone to write it. I wouldn't have done a whole show. But the, the producer brain, the show business side of me thought uh, it could definitely be a twofold experience that I could learn a lot out of. And I hope along the way, other people have gotten something out of it, too. And when you do things, you go all out. So this is a good example of that. The little boy who had to have every single collection from McDonald's Happy Meal, every single book, and you were focused and determined. And I have to tell you, Dan, I am so proud of you. I thought this was going to be really a bogus idea and something that you were just going to do for a couple of weeks. But I was amazed at the professionalism of the podcast. I was elated when I would have messages from my friends and telling me what a great job you did and that they listened to it. I also have found that I have learned and grown sometimes not always willingly by listening to the episodes. And I think that it has made me a better person. And certainly it makes me love your dad more looking at different things. It made me more self-reflective on my life. But I'm really, really happy that you did this podcast, whether it's your gift to Sarah or whether or not you will go to Williams-Sonoma and get her that pressure cooker that she wanted or whatever. I do feel as though this will now live through perpetuity. One of the other things that, Dan, I was really amazed at through the podcast is the diversity of your friends. And so a lot of times when you would be interviewing somebody, there would be I would know them, right, from all the years of them coming over, your friendships. And I realized what great resources, what great friends, what great relationships you have made throughout your life. And that made me really proud. And when I look back at my parenting skills and I think, oh, gosh, I should have done better here or something like that. This podcast has made me realize like, yeah, you did a really good job. You have really good kids. And it's not only what they do. It's also the relationships that they formed. Thank you. That was all very kind. And I'm going to tell Jake to edit all that out. <laughs> anyway, I'm uncomfortable with praise. And so uh, none of that will make it in. I, I'll, I'll cut it out when you say, I thought this was going to be bogus. I'll actually just put that in there. The, the last question I wanted to ask is for you to answer for each other. How have you seen the other person change over your marriage? So I think mom has become much more adventuresome in, you know, both going places, reading, being exposed to different things. And that's an evolution that I think has happened over the years. So, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of change in terms of growing and, you know, hopefully, like I said, I learned a lot from her. Hopefully she learned a little bit of me. <laughs> so, Dan, when Dad and I first met, we would go around town and we would go to the gas stations, you know, fill the car up with gas. And dad, I'd say like, oh, there's my high school boyfriend. And so when dad says like, I evolve, I really didn't know. I was really very limited growing up in a small town to going into New York. I had to like plan my whole trip. I knew only to go a couple blocks and being adventuresome. Yes. Dad has exposed me to, it doesn't matter. You don't have to be confident in every area. There's a curiosity and an exploration that you need to go out there and you need to really see things. So yeah, that's nice that you saw that with me. And with dad, I see him being more open, talking more, 
sharing his feelings more. I think he was very quiet when we first met. And now he's out there. He's funny. He's witty. I think most of my wit comes from him. He'll, he's just a really funny guy. He now cooks. So, you know, adventuresome in that arena as well. And I think, Dan, one of the things you asked about the relationships and one of the things that I think helps relationships is always wanting to grow, always wanting to explore and always willing to try different things. Sometimes things work, you know, sometimes things work out great and sometimes they don't. And But just that that curiosity that we carry forward will also help that relationship to grow and doing things together as well as doing things separately. Absolutely. But I wanted to share that this podcast and even today when you mentioned about searching for love, you were the most loving child. So it's ironic that you're searching for love. And if I had to guess and predict when you were three years old or four years old, I would have thought by the time you were 25, you would have been married and starting a family. Because like you said, at the beginning of the show, you had said you wanted to be a dad when you grew up, that you wanted to have a family. So what you're saying is I completely failed at your own expectations. I'm actually, I think you completely exceeded me. (laughs) It was really a low bar for you, Dan. (laughs) I think you're well on your way. Everything comes with due time. Yeah, I find I think you're well on your way to finding love and want, finding that person that is going to fulfill your life and make you happy. Well, my life is already very fulfilled. That wasn't even sarcastic. That's true. <laughs> uh, I have a great life. I really do. I like my life a lot. Um, and I'm sure one other person will make it even better. Thank you again. This This is the last episode before the ceremony, which I have to conduct and haven't written yet. And then we'll, we'll talk to Sarah on the other side of it. Hope they're still married by then. Thank you to Joan and Jerry, my parents. The next time you are listening to this show, my sister will, hopefully, be married. And I will have given the wedding ceremony that I have been stressing about. How did it go? How did my sister feel about it? Was all this worth it? I don't have the answer to that right now, but find out on the next episode of Out of Love. Please subscribe to and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. You don't want to miss that last episode. Out of Love is a production of WeWo Media and is recorded at Green Street Studios. It is hosted and produced by me, Dan Casarella. This show is mixed by Jake Katz, our engineer. Aaron Bradley is our art director. The opening theme is Acolyte, and the closing theme is Toronto Mug, both written and performed by Slaughter Beach Dog. Thank you for listening. Have a happy new year. We'll see you then, and stay lovely.